The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. Um, join me in a word of prayer as we uh, look into the word today. Um, Father, we um, come to you uh, just in the wake of um, some events that we just could not have really imagined uh, being witness to in our lifetime. Uh, the things that happened on Wednesday at the Capitol. Um, and it seems almost like an end game to uh, what for years now has been political strife and uh, a nation divided, um, tearing apart it, its very seams. And in the face of that, all we can do is turn our hearts to you and once again uh, confess that you alone are the source of any hope, any stability, any security uh, that we have in this life. You alone also are the hope of any real healing and change and transformation. For all those who feel betrayed or brokenhearted or angry and maybe even vindictive and all the different emotions that are running through our hearts this day. We pray that there would be real healing found in Jesus' name, and that our eyes would be fixed on you and you alone, who is the hope of this world and the perfecter of our faith. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we've heard this phrase, living in an unprecedented times, so often these days that um, I think it's basically become cliche. And the fact that we could consider a term like unprecedented times cliche uh, shows how extraordinary these days are that we're living through right now. Uh, just as we've finished saying good riddance to 2020, thinking that 2021 was going to be such a better year, uh, less than a week into this new year, I think we were all shocked when we turned to the news and watched this footage of this angry mob of Trump supporters who uh, clashed with police at the U.S. Capitol. And they were easily able to breach those security cordons and they broke through windows and doors in the Capitol building. And then they began to roam the halls of the Capitol while Congress was in a joint session in order to certify the Electoral College votes. Five have died as a result of the rioting, including one Capitol Police officer. And what happened on Wednesday was roundly condemned by everyone, just about, regardless of political persuasion, and rightly so. The actions of this mob were politically motivated, but their actions transcended politics. Uh, they were attack on democracy itself, on the nation itself. And I think the assault on the Capitol has underscored how divided our nation is right now and how passionate the political beliefs are on both sides of the aisle. Even now, the House of Representatives is drawing up articles of impeachment to impeach the president for the second time in his first term. 
Others are urging the cabinet and the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment and to declare President Trump as unfit to govern this nation. You know, if we were following the Bible Project series right now, um, we're supposed to talk today on this theme of the water of life. Uh, but I felt compelled to say something in response to the things that happened on Wednesday and the things that are going on in our nation these years. There, there's just no way that it can comprehensively cover everything that probably needs to be said on this issue. And so I'm going to limit my response to just a couple of perspectives that I think we need to hold on to as we think about what it is actually going to mean for our nation to move forward from something like what we witnessed this past week. Next week, I will come back to this theme of water of life because there's actually some really strong convictions I have about that theme that I want to say. And so we'll cover that next week. Um, But for today, I want to address politics. I think along with the disbelief and the confusion, I think many of us also feel a sense of resignation and maybe even hopelessness, that things will ever get any better when it comes to politics in America. Because if anything, it feels like we're just going in the wrong direction. Things are only getting worse. Each side is just so dug into their positions and is so distrustful of the other side. But what I want to say this morning is this. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity to play a pivotal role in the healing of our nation. But I also want to say this. I think that can only happen if we ourselves rise above the partisan traps created by our political systems and be the church that God has called us to be. Um, I I also want to say this. I'm going to cover a couple of mature themes today. And if you are watching the service with little kids, uh, I don't know. You just might want to be a little bit cautious of that. I don't think I'm going to say anything too graphic, um, but I will be um, really in, ex- anticipating I am essentially speaking to adults right now. Um, back in 2007, while I was serving as a medical director of a mission hospital in Kenya, uh, I helped to organize these annual youth camps uh, hosted at our hospital for boys who were undergoing the rite of circumcision. And you know, in America, when we do circumcision, we um, do it as infants. We do it right after the babies are born. But in many places in Africa, that is done in their teenage years. And it's done that way because it's considered a rite of passage into manhood, that after you are circumcised, uh, you become a man. And traditionally in Kenya, what they would do is they would take the boys into the forest and they would have these traditional ceremonies. Uh, it was done with non-sterile technique, and so infections could arise from that. And there would be a lot of beer drinking and a lot of other stuff. And so what we decided was, why don't we provide an alternative to that tradition by doing it in the hospital where it could be done sterile, under sterile technique. And then rather than having them drink beer and all that, let's just actually teach them what what a true man is according to scripture. And so it was almost like a promise keepers conference connected with a circumcision uh, rite. And we ended up hosting a camp like that uh, at our hospital. 
And we do this annually because the traditional time to do that was in December. And so for a week after their circumcisions were done, um, while they were convalescing in the hospital, we would gather these teenage boys together and we would teach them about the Bible over the course of that week. Uh, And during one of those sessions, I decided to show them the movie Hotel Rwanda, which depicts the genocide that happened in that country in 1993. And after showing that film, um, I talked with these boys about the dangers of tribalism and the worrisome ways that I saw that even in Kenya, tribal identity meant everything. It was your primary identity and often the resultant animosity that was often expressed against other tribes in the nation. And I, and I was just sharing about the destruction that this tribalism has caused in the history of Africa. And a number of these teenage boys openly laughed at my warning. And they were arguing to me that Kenya was far more progressive than a country like Rwanda. And that nothing like that could ever happen in their country. A couple of weeks later, Kenya descended into the chaos of post-election violence that left thousands dead after accusations of a rigged presidential election perpetrated by the dominant tribe in Kenya. People were dragged out of cars and buses and killed if their government ID cards didn't show that they were from the right tribe. And in the aftermath of that violence, after it all settled down, those same youth that was at that camp came to me, chastened by the carnage that they had witnessed. And oddly, they they asked me if I had some kind of advanced knowledge about the post-election violence that was about to take place. Because in their calculation, how could I have known to talk about tribalism and show that movie Hotel Rwanda so close to the election if I didn't know something from the inside. And I told them I had no insider information, only an understanding of human nature. And yet, as I watched that footage of the Capitol being stormed this past Wednesday, I realized that I actually had that same arrogant attitude as those Kenyan youth. For them, it was never in Kenya. We are not Rwanda. But for me, it was, this could never happen in the U.S. We are not Africa. But the events of this past week have proven me wrong. And this brings me to the first point that I want to make in my message today. And is this. As Christians, we must resist the tribalism of politics. One of the most dangerous and destructive aspects of politics is the tribal instinct that it brings out of all of us. Politics is all about loyalty to our group. And our politics provides us with quick ways to identify who are our people and who are others, or maybe more explicitly, who is the enemy. And the truth is, our world is complex. 
And it's really hard to wade through all of the information that we need to in order to reach an informed decision on anything from immigration to healthcare to the economy. But here is the thing. Once you pick a political side, everything becomes much simpler, doesn't it? Our political tribe provides us with predetermined answers to everything. We now know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, which news sources we should listen to and which ones are garbage and just lie to us, and how to make sense of any given news event that shows up on our news feed. Everything, when it comes through a political lens, is black and white. There are no shades of gray. Political parties don't encourage us to see the complexity of issues. They don't encourage us to try to understand or have empathy of others, the other side, let alone even listen to them. Political leaders in our country on both sides gain our allegiance by stoking our fears. And let me say this, fear sells. Fear wins elections. Fear raises millions of dollars into the coffers of these parties. And they know it. And the more that they can get us to fear and hate and demonize the other side, the more loyalty that we will pledge to them. The problem with fear, though, is that at best it can create tribes or factions. It cannot build genuine community that unites us all together. In other words, political systems draw their power from their ability to divide us, forcing us into this binary decision of us versus them. Because when we are afraid, we will do everything in our power to protect ourselves at the expense of others. When we are afraid, we have no desire to love our neighbor. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, John is admittedly talking about our relationship with God. But in talking about that relationship, he exposes how fear and love are diametrically opposed to one another. Love, he says, can't be perfected when fear is reigning in our hearts. It just is not compatible. And when we have experienced God's love contrarily, then our fears are overcome and banished. They're dealt with out of love. And I think the same could be said about our relationships with one another. When we fear others and see them as the problem, we cannot love them or even understand them. But when we experience God's unmerited love for us, it ought to radically transform how we see others. So what I'm saying is this. I think we have to honestly ask ourselves, are the political positions that we hold driven by fear or love? In other words, let me get real about this. Do I vote for the person who I think will make my 401k perform well so that my retirement will be secure? 
who will keep my neighborhood safe and ensure that my children will be protected. Now, let me say this. These are legitimate concerns when we're considering who we ought to vote for in any given election. But that cannot be our only consideration. How does my politics reflect my love for my neighbor? Or even, frankly, my love for my enemy? Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 45 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. As the church of Jesus Christ, I believe we must demonstrate to our fractured and disillusioned nation that God alone can give us a love that enables us to overcome our deepest fears and distrust of one another. You see, politics wants to turn us against each other as enemies, but the love of Christ brings us together in love. Listen, at ICC, I am fully aware that we have Republicans and Democrats and truthfully probably a lot of independents. We have those who support Trump and those who have voted against him. And I want to say that all of you are welcomed here at ICC because in Christ we have discovered a love that unites us despite our politics, that is greater than our politics and the identity that that politics might grant to us. And my hope is that we will extend the same love and grace to one another that we have been shown by God. And the second point that I want to make is simply this, that as Christians, we must not allow our politics to shape our reality. We must not allow our politics to shape our reality. In order to explain this point, because I think this one is a little more complicated, let me begin with this quote by uh, Caitlin Ashes from her book, The Liturgy of Politics. Our habit of identifying anything from chocolate chip cookies to football teams as idols lessens the impact of the real meaning of the word. In Scripture, Israel is repeatedly judged for her idolatry, worshiping worthless objects instead of the one true God. But the prophets who so consistently communicate this judgment don't describe her idolatry as merely replacing valuing, replaced valuing of some good thing, the way we often use the term, but as capitulation to a different story and set of values. While our relationships to chocolate chip cookies and football teams can certainly dishonor God, perhaps we've watered down the language of idolatry to the point where we miss the real idols. Political participation has a unique ability to inspire idolatry in people, precisely because it so often involves promises of protection and provision, requires sacrifices, legitimizes authority, and inspires submission and worship. I think that's such a powerful and needed word in this moment that we're in right now. 
we often think of idolatry as basically anything that can capture our heart and compete with our love for God. Now, there is truth in that. But then what's the difference between our idols and everyday temptations that we face all the time? As Shess insightfully points out, our idols are so dangerous because they replace the story that God is telling with a competing story that redefines our reality. Let me say that again because this is really an important point. Our idols are so dangerous because they replace the story that God is telling with a competing story that redefines reality for us. This is what happened on Mount Sinai when the Israelites grew tired of waiting for Moses who wasn't coming down from the mountaintop meeting with God and they demanded his brother Aaron to make for them different gods than the God of Israel. In Exodus 32, verse 1 to 4, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a golden calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Rather than worshiping Yahweh, their God, for what he had done, they bowed to this golden calf, and in doing so, they were rewriting the history of Israel, saying that this is the God that delivered us out of slavery from Egypt. Our idols have the power to reshape our understanding of reality, telling us what our greatest needs are in our life. They give us, in other words, an entire framework for understanding our world. What are my greatest needs? What is the good life that I long for? What are the greatest threats to that good life? And how do these false gods, these idols, promise to rescue me from those threats? The false gods of politics tell us that the greatest threat to our happiness and our security is liberal Marxism or the LGBTQ agenda if you're conservative or it's fascist nationalism or white supremacy if you're liberal. And regardless of which side of that debate you take, when you make an idol of politics, our only hope of defeating our perceived enemies is to win elections and make sure that our guys hold the seats of power in the nation. And if holding on to political power is where we have placed all of our hopes, then it shouldn't surprise us to see the intensity of the bitterness and anger that is being displayed in this post-election season right now. After all, if your political party loses, what hope is there for the future? All is lost, isn't it? And what I want to say is this, as Christians, I think we all need to wrestle with whether it is our faith or our politics that is primarily shaping our reality and determining our values and choices that we make in our life. 
You know, if you go back to 1998, when it was revealed that President Bill Clinton was caught having a sexual relationship with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky, evangelical Christians were among the most vocal critics demanding his removal from office. Clinton was eventually impeached, but it was because he lied under oath and he obstructed justice. But the emphasis of Christians during that time was that he was unfit to be our president because, as they said, and this became the mantra in the 90s, character counts. Character counts. Fast forward to the current administration, and strangely, many evangelicals have taken the exact opposite position, defending President Trump against attacks that he is unfit for office because of his flawed character. You know, during the 2016 election, Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, vocally protested evangelical support for Trump, arguing, and this is a famous quote of his, if I were to support, much less endorse, Donald Trump for president, I would actually have to go back and apologize to former president Bill Clinton. I don't know if Mohler ever issued an apology to Clinton, but in 2020, uh, he changed his position and endorsed Donald Trump. Now, please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. My argument isn't that a Christian can't support Trump or that it was wrong for Christians to demand that Clinton be removed from office for what he did in the 90s. I actually believe that you can be a wholehearted, Jesus-loving Christian and come to both of those conclusions. But my worry is that many Christians have argued that character counts in one case and not the other, and that changing our opinion on this matter may be driven more out of political calculations rather than theological convictions. What I am trying to expose is that my worry is often I think we are led by our politics, and then we figure out justifications to work our way around those things. I'm not saying that that happens to anyone who disagrees with my political opinions. And I think even fully convinced Bible-believing Christians are going to differ on where we land on these issues. All I am asking all of us to do, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, is can you be honest enough in your soul-searching to ask yourself, does my faith trail my politics? Through my political tribe, am I already given certain biases and answers embedded into my heart that I don't even realize are there, that are coloring the reality with which I see our world? Or is it the gospel that is fundamentally driving the way? In the Gospel of Luke, we find this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders who tried to entrap him with this politically sensitive and even dangerous issue of paying taxes to the Roman occupiers. And there were many Jews 
nationalistic Jews who thought that as a matter of conscience, it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, arguing that it would be giving money to pagans that was coming from God's people. But the problem, and the the leaders knew this, is that if Jesus took this position, then they could accuse him of inciting sedition against the Roman authorities. They thought it was a fail-safe trap. And so this is the exchange as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verse 19 to 26. The teacher of the law and the chief priests looked for way, a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. You know, Jesus replied to them as a clever one. He set up a trap of his own by asking them, whose image is on this Roman coin? And they had no choice but to acknowledge that it was Caesar's image on that coin. And Jesus uses their answer against them, arguing that they ought to give back to Caesar what rightfully belongs to him because, after all, his image is on that coin. But, but that's actually not all that Jesus says to them. He also tells them in the same way you ought to give to God what belongs to God. Now, here's the thing. Some have used this passage as a biblical argument for the separation of church and state. Some things are a matter of politics, and some things are a matter of faith. And we need to separate those two worlds, both in our personal lives as well as in society. But I actually think that that misses the point that Jesus is making which is far more profound about where our allegiances should lie. You know that word image that Jesus uses in reference to Caesar's likeness on the denarius is the Greek word icon. That is the same word that is used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1.26 where God says, let us make mankind in our image, our icon, in our likeness. In other words, if we ought to give to Caesar the tax that he demands because his image is on the coin, then what Jesus' implication is this. What does that mean for you who are image bearers of God? I believe that is what Jesus means when he says, give to God what belongs to God. Give Caesar his coin. Throw him the denarius. It's in his image. Give it back to him. But give your entire self to God because his image is imprinted on you. 
as his image bearers. God alone is the one who deserves our total allegiance. And we must live for his kingdom agenda alone. In other words, as Christians, we must find our primary identity not in our political systems of this world, but as citizens of God's kingdom. And it is so important for us to safeguard that identity because in these days in America, it has gotten really blurry. This world of politics and faith enmeshed with one another. We have to guard God's kingdom agenda and preserve the witness of the church over and against the political systems of our nation. Philip Yancey, in his book, Christians and Politics, Uneasy Partners, writes, when I ask my airplane seatmates, what comes to mind when I say the words evangelical Christian? They usually respond in political terms. Yet the gospel of Jesus was not primarily a political platform. In all the talk of voting blocks and culture wars, the message of grace, the main distinctive Christians have to offer, tends to fall aside. It is difficult, if not impossible, to communicate the message of grace from the corridors of power. The church is becoming more and more politicized. And as society unravels, I hear calls that we emphasize mercy less and morality more. Stigmatize homosexuals, shame unwed mothers, persecute immigrants, harass the homeless, punish lawbreakers. I get the sense from some Christians that if we just pass enough harsh laws in Washington, we can turn our country around. I fear that our clumsy pronouncements, our name-calling, our hysteria about important issues, in short, our lack of grace may in the end prove so damaging that society no longer looks to us for the guidance it needs. I think that those are important words for the church today. Have we become so politicized that we have compromised our witness to a far greater good news of the gospel, that a king reigns on his throne, and his name is Jesus, and he calls all of us to his allegiance out of his love for us. Listen, I don't want to be Pollyanna about this. It would be so easy just to simply say Christians should just stay out of politics and do what's good. Because the problem is there are political implications to the gospel message that you cannot dodge. I am not arguing that Christians should not get involved in politics. It was actually the political risk of the claim of Jesus that got him killed on the cross. But I also want to acknowledge that as Christians, we're not going to always agree on what the political ramifications of God's kingdom are in America. And that is why we need to also demonstrate the fruit of God's Spirit and be the peacemakers that operate out of the foundation of a kingdom ethic that loves our enemy and turns the other cheek and loves those who don't always agree with us. And I believe that this is the desperate call 
of the church in America today. And I think it's a message that this world will desperately grab for if they see it in us because they have lost a lot of hope in the political promises of their leaders. And so my prayer as we go through this incredibly difficult season in our nation is that we will rise up and be the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and to display who Christ is and his hope, his promises, his power to a world that is in desperate need of that good news. At this time, I want to invite us to come to the Lord's table. And as I've been sharing quite a bit in uh, recent communions, I think there's a real danger when we come to communion that so often we see this as such a private public act, you know, that though we may be taking the communion in a room filled with people, uh, we're just so tunnel visioned and focused on ourselves. Uh, am I right with God, and how does he see me? And, and I think sometimes we forget that even this act of coming to the table is in its own way a witness to the world, of seeing people that come from all different socioeconomic classes, from different ethnic groups, from different political persuasions, just like the first disciples were. And we can gather around a common table of fellowship. And because of what Christ has purchased on the cross. We can declare the oneness in love that we have because of Christ's work on the cross. And so that is the declaration I want us to make as the witnesses of this gospel as we take from this table today. It's to declare that because of what Christ has done for us, not only reconciling us with God, but tearing down the walls of hostility that existed with one another, that we can model to this world an entirely different vision of community, of unity, of love. And so let me invite you at this time to go ahead and take first from the bread and then secondly from the cup. And I'll close this in a word of prayer and our brother Juno will lead us in a song of closing. Father, we confess before you that because of what Christ has done, we no longer regard anyone from the flesh. But as new creations, we come together as your holy people, redeemed by your love, and out of that redemption, demonstrate that same love to one another. And so we confess, Father God, for the ways that we have judged even our brother and sister in Christ because of the political eyes through which we have seen them. We also confess that regardless of which part of the political spectrum we may be in, we have been wooed by the idols of politics to put too much of our hope in these political systems and the hope that they might bring to us. 
May you use this season of our nation as a clarifying moment for the church to pledge our allegiance to the one true King, Jesus Christ. And let us put on display that the world can see the fruit and the power of that allegiance. He alone is the good king. He alone is the faithful shepherd. He alone is the savior of our souls. The one in whom we can put every one of our deepest hopes and dreams and wishes. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.